All right, good morning to everyone. Let's uh, be finding our seats again. Welcome to all those in our overflow area as well. Glad you could be with us. If you're here for the first time, just orient you a little bit with our summer series. <clears throat> Each summer we feature our own members sharing what God is doing in their lives in combination with our sermon topic. And we've been preaching through the book of Nehemiah, which really majors on the rebuilding of the walls uh, of the temple in Jerusalem. And that was a very, very significant historical event because Jerusalem, symbol of its vitality and health, was the temple. And so God put into the Old Testament this book about the temple walls being rebuilt, but it's also a prophetic picture. It's also a spiritual picture of walls that God wants to rebuild in our lives. And so we've had several weeks now of just wonderful testimonies. And I think the reason why that these testimonies are so powerful is that it represents John 1.14, where the Bible says there that the word became flesh. And testimonies are truth realized in human form. Uh, we can read the word, we can hear the word, but it can just stay in the abstract until we hear how it's transformed someone's life. And that's when it becomes alive and, and powerful. And it shows how the Word of God works out there in the wild where we are. So it becomes personal and vivid. And this morning, I want to invite up Kennedy Mayodi. Uh, he's going to share what God has been doing in his life. So Kennedy, if you could come on up. Uh, yeah, as, as you've heard, my name, uh, name is uh, Kennedy Mayodi. For those who know me, for those who don't, still Kennedy Mayodi. Um, born and raised in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, um, to a family of uh, four siblings, so seven in total, one mother, one, one father. Uh, I'm just going to grab this microphone. Yeah, so about 42 years ago, I know I don't look it, but... Yeah, but so born and raised in Kenya, grew up in Kenya for the most of my life. Um, what you most might refer to as a PK, a pastor's kid. Uh, that will tie into my testimony as well. Um, all my siblings um, born again at, a, at an early age, but uh, I wasn't. Um, I'm going to start at the end and then tied in uh, from the beginning. So in 2012, uh, December, I got married to that wonderful lady you all have seen uh, playing the keyboard. Uh, her name is Elise, uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, lady, beautiful and gorgeous. But um, unfortunately, uh, in 2014, uh, we, we got separated and eventually divorced. Um, sorry if I punk out on you guys. So we got divorced in uh, around, no, separated around July 2014. We had Marquez. He was, must have been four months th um, at that time. Uh, and then we eventually stood before a judge and, you know, the divorce was final sometime in 2016. When the divorce happened, I was, um, my, my world came crashing down. Uh, it was, uh, 
it was quite painful. It was quite painful. And uh, in my own self-justification and my own self-righteousness, I didn't know why that was happening to me and why she would do something like that to me, uh, against me. Uh, that's how it felt. Uh, and so it was a really painful time, a time of uh, bitter exchanges uh, back and forth. Uh, and at that time now, I was born again, and I, in my own eyes, I was so, you know, righteous and, and, and just, and, and so I spent a lot of time praying, and unfortunately, I was praying against my own wife, against the mother of my own child, you know, asking for God to intervene and vindicate me, being ours, you know, his son, his child, and his servant. Uh, totally disregarding the fact that Elise was also his daughter. <laughs> so, this, all this, I'm sorry, mine is kind of interlinked, it's kind of complex, it's simple, but it's, it's also complex because most of the things that I've found out, most of the things that God has been healing me from, uh, have just been happening the past four months or five months. So mine is an ongoing story. Uh, it's not over yet, but, uh, but uh, God is working on me. So uh, uh, it's become apparent to me. At that time, it wasn't, but it's become apparent to me. I had so many wounds. I had so many, I had so many hurts in my in my hurt in my in the deepest of me. Um, I've been battling a lot of stuff that I didn't even know I was battling growing up. It is all tied into my, you know, my childhood. And 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 God has been just working on me uh, bit by bit, just uh, peeling away the layers as I've been doing a lot of work with the Pastor John. I did not know. To some extent, I was aware, but to me that was normal. But I did, know that I I, I did not know that I was so abusive. And I was really controlling and manipulative. To me, I was just a Christian man, an African Christian man, who was doing what God had mandated him to do. In my culture, in the African culture, uh, let me say Kenyan, because Africa has 55 countries. In my Kenyan culture, you know, men are the, you know, you're robust and you're the head of the home and your word is final and so on and so forth. For you is to put your wife and your kids in, in place where they're supposed to be. And uh, this has been a part of me. Knowing and not knowing, I, I was in this. I, I grew in this. And um, whenever we had a discussion, for example, uh, in uh, at home between my wife and I, I would just say, I don't want that, or I don't like that, uh, and that was it. There was no room for discussion because my word was final. I remember even talking to my dad because they felt they felt like uh, my wife was was my head. That's as far as they're concerned. That's what they saw, and you know, I, 
words that came from my, my own dad's mouth were, were like, you know, son, from time to time, you've got to put your foot down. And so there's two worlds here. There's uh, one person from, you know, from the West, and there's another person from, you know, from a d totally different culture, and there's this, you know, back and forth. And, and, um, and I just, um, to have my way, to be the man of the house that I'm supposed to be, I would be throwing tantrums. I would be, I would be, I would have these outbursts of anger. But it was all, a facade was all to control and to be manipulative. But if anybody had asked me, I was the most loving, most wonderful husband. I was the most amazing man. I mean, just, you know, I was, you know, the center of attraction. I, I, I was it. As I said, growing up, I grew up in a Christian family, a pastor's kid. Now, those of you who are not pastor's kid, you don't know what kind of pressure that comes with. It's a lot of pressure. You're supposed to be a certain way. You're supposed to behave in a certain manner. Coupled with the African culture or the Kenyan culture of kids are to be seen, not heard. To be a respectful kid, you don't interrupt. You don't talk to your parents when, for example, if, if guests walked into the house, you would say hello and you'd be on your way. Out or be in the bedroom, you know, don't show your face. That's the African culture. And the African culture is you should know. You should just know by default that your parents love you. So even amongst the siblings, there's no affection. There's nothing. There's, uh, there's no, you know, I love you. Uh, the way of encouragement is not like, oh, you did so well. For example, if, if, you, if uh, in math, if you got like 60%, they won't say, oh, yeah, you really tried, you got 60%. would be like, oh, my goodness, you could have gotten 100 or 90. You know, what happened? You know, so that, that's, that's how we show affection. That's how we, you know, if, if, if you're married to your wife and you've been married for 15 years and they say, you never, you never tell me that you love me, you know, that is just followed by the question, what did I tell you the first day, first day we got married? You know, if I ever change my mind, you'll be the first one to know. So, so that, that is what I'm, I'm brought up in. And I don't know if any, this uh, has anything to do with it, but I was a middle child. And a middle child, we kind of we disappear. We kind of become invisible. So all this created in me a sense of, of um, not a sense, but, but I was suffering low self-esteem and inferiority complex and the spirit of rejection that I've carried, that God has just revealed unto me. It must have been like a month, a month and a half ago. I've been struggling with that my entire life. And so growing up, we always had to earn uh, uh, what, what, you know, acknowledgement. You, you, always, you always had to fight to show yourself approved and loved. And uh, you just go through the paces without knowing that's what's happening. Being a pastor's kid and always had to be at the forefront in the church. There was a lot of pressure. And at the same time, I grew up in a really, really rough neighborhood that has a lot of peer pressure. And, and what my friends would portray was that I was missing out on life. And so I, 
I felt like I didn't want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ because first and foremost, there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of stuff that I had to live up to. And secondly, I was missing out on life. And I felt like I knew some, somewhere deep in my heart that one day I was going to get born again, but it had to be after I've lived my life to the fullest. And so at a really early age, I started dabbling in, 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 in alcohol to numb the pain of everything that was going on at home. And, 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 and I started also dabbling in pot smoking. And I must have been, at around, I must have been 14 years of, of age, 14 years old. And this went on for a really long time through high school until I was around 22. At the age of 22, I had a run, my first run-in with, uh, with, uh, with the authority, with the police. I was walking with my friend. We had just bought a few joints, and we were about to go smoke, and uh, we ran into the police and um, tried to run away from the police. That was a really big mistake. <laughs> uh, there, there's nothing like human rights in Kenya. So once they caught me, they let me know that <laughs> I wasn't doing the right thing. I ended up in a police cell. Uh, that was a Friday, and I was uh, I was supposed to face uh, a judge uh, Monday morning. Being caught in possession of a joint in Kenya amounted to a minimum of 11 years in prison, and the prison in Kenya is not anything like what you people know in the West. Uh, that will just mean the the, the end of you. And. Uh, my friend that I was caught with, that was in his first time being, you know, uh, being in, in trouble with the police. So his parents knew ways and means, and, and, and they were a bit well off than, than we were. So they ended up getting him off, and I ended up uh, being the one who was left to face the charges. And so, yeah, uh, I was, it, it was like it was a done deal. But when I was caught on Friday, news got to my parents and, and, and the church fraternity and they started praying for me and they prayed for me really hard and, and, uh, and they fasted. And uh, Sunday, uh, sometime in the afternoon, early, uh, late, late morning, early afternoon, I got released. So all these events in my life led me to have uh, a radical change in me where I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. So I gave my life to Jesus Christ a week after the, the entire ordeal. That was January 28, 1998. And from then on, I was uh, immersed into church. I was, uh, I, was, I was passionate about the things of God. I, I, I would be in church five days uh, out of seven in a week. Uh, I would spend nights in vigil. I, I served in, 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 in all aspects of, of, of ministry that you can think of. I was so radical about it. I even went to Bible school in Denmark in 2000. And so all these things, when I look back, made me feel like now I was, I was, it, I was on the right path. Uh, there was nothing wrong with me. I, was, I loved God. I loved God passionately, you know. If it, when it came to singing, I would sing the loudest. When it came to dancing, you know, you know Africans, we love to dance. And, 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 and we, we pray loudly. If, if, if it's not loud, then it's not prayer. If you're not sweating, then, you know, God is not even hearing your prayers. So you have to sweat. And every time you pray, you have to, you know, it has to hurt your knees. You have to be on your knees for, 
six hours, seven hours. So th that's just African for you. You know, we take it to the max. And uh, the problem is you might be on the wrong path and because you do all these gimmicks, you, you, know, you feel like you're justified, you're on the right path. So this is me in a nutshell. I, I, I got radically born again and I was serving in ministry and I was doing all these things. Um, and so I felt like I was, I, I, was, I was right with God and I was on the right path. So you can just imagine the shock when, all the, when, when the uh, separation happened. You can just imagine the shock. Like, how dare, how dare my wife do this to me, me? You know, this wonderful man of God, doesn't she know that she's so blessed, that she's so lucky to have such a hunk that loves God? And, and, and I was so justified, and I was self-righteous, I was considered in my own eyes. And I was praying prayers like, God smite her, you know, because God, you hate divorce. And I was reminding God, God, you hate divorce, you know? And, um, and yeah, I remember in the process of it all, God asked telling me I hate divorce, but I love people. Um, so in as much as I was, you know, you know, I thought that, you know, Elise is my wife and she has to toe the line, you know, God reminded me that's my daughter. So I, I, I didn't think one bit that I was on the wrong. I didn't think one bit that I was abusive. I didn't think one, uh, one bit that I was manipulative. I was really emotionally abusive. My if, if she asked her what life with me felt like, she would tell you it was like walking on eggshells. Because one minute I'd be so happy, and the next minute I'd be having an outburst of anger. But all this was to control and manipulate, to have her where I wanted her to be. And so, in one of, the, in one of our arguments, I'm winding down, in one of our arguments I remember my wife saying, you need help, and you... You need you you, you, know, you need you need counseling. We we should go for counseling, and uh, she might as well just have taken out a spear and just you know speared me through the heart, because you don't say that to a Kenyan, especially a Kenyan believer. We don't go to counselors. We we first and foremost we don't air our we say our dirty laundry in public. That's just African culture. If you talk about Whatever you're struggling with, that's just a weakness. That's just a sign of, of weakness. You're not strong. And moreover, if you're a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, a born-again Christian, then all that is supposed to be in check, and you're supposed to be perfect. <laughs> so as Christians, you know, we don't struggle with anything, and we don't talk. We don't have, we, you, you don't go to a counselor. You don't get counseling for nothing because you're a Christian. So I told my wife, you <laughs> just go on ahead and go to, to a counselor because I, I don't need one. Uh, you clearly need one because you're backslidden, you're not a believer. You go on and seek cons uh, uh, counseling. But one of the conditions, because I said, uh, going back and forth, uh, we need to get back together. And she said, one of the conditions, if only, if we might, we, if I may, if I will consider it, you first and foremost need to go and seek counseling. So, so I thought to myself, uh, I need to save face because having a failed marriage is failure. Where I come from, you failed, you failed completely and totally. And as a Christian, you don't have a failed marriage. 
So I started seeking help. I remember I was going out just next door here. Uh, there's a lady called Margaret Heard with the wings. Um, and I started going there, and there was a men's uh, program as well, a uh, support group for men. And I, I was going with ulterior motives just because I wanted my wife back. Um, so I went faith, faithfully. Uh, and, uh, and I remember one of the facilitators telling me, you know, this might not even solve your problems at home. I mean, this might not heal your marriage. Your marriage might not, you, you know, you might not end up getting your wife back, but this is for you. This is not for your marriage. This is for you as a person. And I was just looking at him. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, just get it over with. Uh, and true to his word, I ended up getting a divorce. But so when I felt like I just, I will just give up everything, I remember getting this, uh, impression upon my heart. What if I just tried, you know, I just did it, uh, even though my marriage is over, what's the worst that could happen? The marriage is already over. And so I continued, and I, and I went, and I went, and, and, and this was actually God's doing. God was, was just working on me bit by bit. Because despite all that, that had happened in my life, God still loved me. And that's the one thing that I actually did not, I was not convinced and convicted about. Yes, I had the right words. I had the, the right appearance. I was going to church. I was serving in church. I, I helped around. I did all these things. I went for prayer. I, I loved worship. I loved praising God. I did all these things. But I was doing it to earn God's favor and God's acceptance and, and, and God's love. Because that's the culture that I've grown in. Like you do things to earn respect, acknowledgement, love, affection. We do things, and I carry that culture with me, and I thought I was on the right, I thought I was righteous, I thought I was doing deeds of righteousness, but this was all works, works of the flesh. To an extent, there was a truth in, there was a sincerity in my heart, because the way God snatched me from the fangs of death, I really wanted to please God, and I was doing it knowing that I was doing the right thing. But there was a lot of self-justification and a lot of self-righteousness involved, and a lot of trying to earn and attain uh, a position in God. And so when I, was, when I continued, after the divorce, when I continued, God was just working on me slowly, peeling away layers and layers and layers that I didn't even know that were there. And finally, sometime late last year, I remember when we were exchanging, we, when we were doing the exchange, uh, Elise had come to pick up uh, Marquez. I remember her looking at me differently. And there was a sudden softness to her look. And I was, I was just like, uh, I didn't know what that was, so I just brushed it aside. But that was the beginning of, um, of, 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 of reconciliation um, because I had acknowledged that I was damaged goods, that I was, not, I was not the person that I thought that I was. And, 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 and the meetings that started becoming frequent and, and when unfortunately she lost a really dear friend, a really close friend to her, she needed to travel all the way to Penticton, and then she asked me to drive because she had problems with her back. And I drove, and I remember that weekend we had a really nice talk. 
and this was the beginning of reconciliation and 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 uh, and uh, and the relationship being rebuilt and and so we started seeing each other more often as a family we sat down had lunches together dinners together and um and and god has been so faithful that even while god was working on me god was also working on elise's heart just to heal her you know to heal her towards me and just to soften her heart and 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 uh, and i'm happy and i'm glad to say that that we're back together as a family and uh, I'm sorry. Uh, we're, we're together. We're back together again as a family. But it's because it started with humility. Right about that time, we started to come to Five Stones last year. Um, late last year. And, and it's been such a blessing. It's been such a blessing. Uh, through, through this ministry, I got connected to Pastor John and Pastor John has been instrumental. We've had amazing sessions together where, where he's taken me through steps of, 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 of healing, of, of reconciling stuff in my, uh, from my childhood, deep-seated things in my life that have been really detrimental to my well-being. But glory be to God. God is just plucking them away one by one. He's just... As it were, you know, he's been operating on me, open heart surgery, and and uh, it's been painful. It's been messy. Uh, it's it's still very painful. It's 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 messy. There are things that come up that you know might cause you to be ashamed, but hey, God knows us inside out. And if we humble ourselves and we just allow Him to do His work, man, He does marvelous things. And I am so so happy. Uh, I've battled for over 30 years of my life with low self-esteem, with inferiority complex, you know, with a spirit of rejection, and, 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 and I'm glad to say God has healed me. It's still a process in my soul, but God has healed me from all that. So personally, God has healed me, and my relationship to my wife, my family life has been healed. We're still working on it step by step. It's a lot of work, uh, messy as I've said. Um, and also my family life, things that I saw growing up, uh, God is healing me from, from those things. So just as he healed me from a life of alcoholism and, uh, and uh, drug abuse in the, in the form of smo smoking pot, because I smoked pot for a really long time. <laughs> when you start smoking pot as a child, my goodness, yeah. But God has healed me from all that. He's healed me from all that pain and hurt. And now I'm just relearning what it is to be a child of God, to accept that we are loved unconditionally. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to do anything to earn his love. But you do from a place of love, of being loved. Romans Romans chapter 5 verse 1 to 5, emphasis on verse 5, it says, you can read the rest for yourself, but verse 5 it says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given unto us. 
So God is imp has impressed upon my heart. This love has been given. I've loved you. I loved you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. Before, it was just head knowledge. Because if you knew me back then, I would bombard you with scripture. You would not believe. You would think that I was a walking, talking Bible. But I knew it all up here. But now it started to sink. A bit by bit, down here. That's why I'm... I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for this church, for the sound doctrine that is being taught here so that I can just sit and unlearn everything that I've learned and learn new things. And, um, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And thanks so much for, for, for listening to my, <laughs> to my all jumbled up story. God bless you. Thank you, Kennedy. That was really, really powerful. I think we can all feel and sense the brokenness there. The Bible says a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. And, you know, we heard the call out from Henzi turning the red carpet, just blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And you see that in living form, that when we come before God, as broken as we are, God starts putting the pieces back together. So thank you so much, Kennedy. It was fabulous. You know, the last two testimonies that we've had back-to-back, -back, um, we've been hearing about the heartbreak of divorce, and it's not a coincidence. I believe that these two testimonies came together uh, because divorce is something that's become so prevalent in our society. I actually want to talk about this topic this morning you know, the statistics tell us that so many marriages have been touched by this. Uh, in Canada, United States, 40% of the first marriages have ended in divorce. 60% after second marriage, 73% after third marriage. And I know that as I'm speaking, many of you have experienced divorce either directly or as children of divorced parents. And in keeping with our Nehemiah series, if there was ever a broken wall in our society that needs to be repaired and rebuilt, broken marriages is one of them. It's one of the most devastating things we can experience. And again, I want to applaud Kennedy and Hannah for sharing in such honest and personal way because your story gives voices to others and helps them to get healed. So it takes a lot of courage. So I want to speak pastorally this morning about what Five Stones believes regarding divorce and remarriage. The gospel brings hope and light to every broken wall. Any broken wall that we experience, whether it's big or small, and of course divorce is a big one, the gospel comes to bring healing to marriages, and if we can bring that to not just some people, but to multitudes in society, that would be a revival, that would be a move of God. There's not a broken wall that the gospel can't heal or touch, and that's the very point, that God can reach us anywhere no matter, or no matter how deep or how dark it can get. Now, my comments this morning come from being in pastoral ministry for almost 30 years, wrestling with scripture, and having counseled many marriages, many times in emergency situations with police involved. And few things can hurt us as deeply as a broken relationship between a husband and a wife because there's no relationship meant to have more power in life. 
The husband-wife relationship is meant to image and reflect the very relationship between Jesus and the bride of Christ, which is the church. So when the Bible speaks of marriage, it's not primarily speaking as a judge, but as a participant in marriage. We know the bride and bridegroom metaphor is one of the most powerful metaphors that the scripture gives. It's meant to cast for us and to help us to understand that this relationship that we talk about with God is a relationship and not a positional thing. And Kennedy shared with us how just eroding and difficult and even devastating it can be to see God just as this rules giver and we're trying to constantly please him or appease him. But the bride-bridegroom recasts that relationship and helps us to see the tenderness of what God is after. And so God personally knows the pain of divorce, and I'll touch on that in just a moment. But with regard to divorce and remarriage, because this is such a big topic, I want to just condense it and make it clear as possible. I'm going to break this down into two main categories. First is divorce that is explicitly allowed in Scripture, and then divorce that is allowed in a derived manner within the larger frame of how God feels about marriage. But it's important for us to remember the big picture, the top-line view of divorce. And as with any biblical topic, the Bible always provides the general rule and then the exceptions, just like the rules of grammar. But human nature as it is, we like to turn the exception into the rule and then the rule into the exception. So we invert it and we reverse it, but we can't do that. We need to keep the main teaching the main teaching and the exception the exception. And if we reverse this, we undermine ourselves and we lose out on God's greater purpose. Despite all the pain that Kennedy went through, there was a North Star that he held on to, and that was God's view of divorce and God's view and his burden for reconciliation. We already heard the quote from Malachi chapter 2. So Malachi was one of the Old Testament prophets, and he gave voice to the Lord's perspective about divorce. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. That is his view of divorce in a nutshell. He hates it. Marriage is God's first institution. It's the basis of family, of society, of children's identity, their emotional health, their sense of purposefulness, significance, and the ability to contribute positively in a lifelong way. Marriages are the basis of God's society, God's holy nation, which is the church. And no one is more vested in marriage than God. So God is not looking to throw bricks. He's looking to pour out oil. But if he is looking to throw bricks, it's at the liars and the deceivers and the manipulators that mar what marriage is supposed to be. That's where his fierce anger is stirred. But the big picture is that God hates divorce, and that's the primary rule. That's the general rule, the general tenor of the Bible. When and where divorce can be avoided, it should be avoided at all costs. Gifted writer Rebecca Miller and pastor said that Scripture consistently communicates that marriage is a lifelong commitment. The biblical idea is marriage as a lifelong union between a man and a woman, both of whom are spirit-filled disciples of Christ. Marriage illustrates the principle of two becoming one, which is also present in the spiritual union between Christ and the church. Marriage is meant to be a sign of God's unbreakable covenant with us when, by the grace of God, 
we're able to keep a marriage together. We get to be symbols, imperfect symbols, but still symbols of God's faithfulness to his people. Marriages are supposed to last because they are symbols of God's lasting love for us. But we live in a fallen world. So the Bible makes provision, and there are exceptions. So I want to touch on three of them. The first case in which divorce is allowed is in the case of marital unfaithfulness. So I've quoted the two main passages from Matthew in which Jesus himself speaks to this. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, there is the exception clause. If your spouse has been unfaithful, that is the exception that allows you to proceed with the separation and ultimately divorce. Matthew 19, Jesus repeats this. The Pharisees came up to him and to test him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses allow you to have a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except, and there's the exception clause again, for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So we see that Jesus tells us clearly that if a spouse has been sexually immoral, that has had relations with someone other than their partner, they can get divorced. Now there's a couple points here to, to, to highlight. First of all, while both of these scriptures apply equally to men and women, the force of it is to go after men. In the Old Testament, which applies today because men has not changed, men tried to find an escape clause to divorce women for any capricious reason. Oh, my wife isn't this, and she isn't that, and she didn't turn out like I thought she would be. And now I'm trapped, and I want to get out of it. So when these Pharisees and these men came to Jesus, they weren't trying to reconcile. They were trying to find a way to weasel out of their marriage. And Jesus was saying, there is no justification of any kind, men, unless your wife has committed adultery. In fact, if you divorce your wife for any reason but unfaithfulness, you commit a sin. And here's the sin. If you divorce your spouse, you are legally forcing her to commit adultery. Even though you haven't, you force her to commit adultery, and that sin is credited to your account, not hers. Secondly, Jesus allowed this exception on the basis of Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 8. It turns out God went through a divorce in the Old Testament. And this is why Jesus allowed in the New Testament. You say, God got divorced? Really? I didn't know that. Didn't you just tell me, Pastor Rich, that God hates divorce? Yes, he does. But here's what it says in Jeremiah chapter 3. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, me as in Jeremiah, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. Verse 8, I gave 
faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adultery. Israel played the harlot. She forsook her covenant with God and went after other lovers and other idols. So God divorced her and gave her a certificate of divorce. We don't have time to go into it, but thankfully God was reconciled. But there was a moment in time where the relationship was completely, not just fractured, but completely broken. So God himself knows the heartache of divorce when the one that is supposed to be the most loyal to you breaks trust and finds another lover. He's been through what we've been through. Now, not that God needed to go through this for us to trust him, but this helps us on a human level to know that God understands intimately our human condition. There's a second exception when divorce is allowed. It's in the case of an unbelieving spouse. Some of us have married spouses that are not Christian. In this case, a clash of values may surface. And the Bible says that you don't know if your unbelieving spouse will ever become a Christian. And the unbelieving spouse may want to leave the marriage. I don't want all this Jesus stuff. I don't want all this Bible stuff. I don't want my kids to go to church. I don't want to pray. I don't want to depend on God. You can have all of that. And so friction starts, and separation begins to happen in terms of your value system. Ultimately, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 7, if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Okay, so the scripture is saying, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they're willing to live in peace with you, do not divorce them. Keep the marriage together in harmony. And if a woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So Paul switches the situation, whether it's the wife or the husband that has an unbelieving spouse, to keep the marriage together if they can live together in peace. But then verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now this is why the Bible says to not marry a non-believer. It's to spare you the possibility of the pain of divorce. Because 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says very clearly, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. So we have two very clear cases where the scripture says, despite the trauma of divorce, there are two exceptions in which divorce is allowed for the sake of peace and for the sake of healing. But there is actually one more exception, and that exception relates to abuse. And we're going to see this not in the explicit way, but it's a derived biblical reasoning. Peter says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Really good commentary was written up by Pastor Paul Carter. He says, the Bible commands all Christians to be gentle in their dealings with one another. There's something that God has put in men, whether we're Christian or not, that knows we're put in a place of power in regard to our wives. And if we exercise that power in a way that diminishes her 
our conscience starts bothering us. But if we continue to repeat that, our conscience deadens and we start ending up in a behavior that becomes ruinous to our wife. And so the Bible places this premium on helping us that we are to treat them with gentleness, to understand that they're heirs with us in the grace of life, and we're to understand them and show honor to them. And so husbands are called and commanded to treat our wives in a special way. Therefore, all forms of physical, emotional, verbal, and sexual abuse is forbidden. To state the obvious, save and sanctified men don't abuse their wives. Physical abuse is a sin. In fact, it's against the law. A woman who's been hit by her husband should do two things immediately. Number one, she should call the police. The Bible says that the king does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's Romans chapter 13, verse 4. The Bible says that God gives to the government the authority to restrain evil and to punish evildoers. So if a wife is struck by her husband, she should call the police. God gives tasers and guns and handcuffs to the police for the protection of the vulnerable. A wife should make appropriate use of that provision. Government officials are charged by God to restrain evil and to punish evildoers. The primary message an abused woman should hear is that the Lord is the protector of the weak. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, there's a, a, a well-known man in there called Boaz, and Boaz was a protector. And that's a picture of Christ. That's a picture of what the church should do is to give covering and protection. Jesus is our Boaz, the gentle, kind, and strong redeemer who spreads his wing of protection over us. And Naomi spoke to Ruth, and said, it's good that you're in the field of Boaz because he will protect you. And so we make that safety tangible to those in our congregation by surrounding them with advocates, counselors, police, and legal protection. Second thing an abused Christian woman should do is call her pastor or the elders of the church. If the husband is a member of the church, he should come under discipline, according to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, to go through the process of working it through, pointing out the error, inviting them to repentance. But if he does not repent, he should be excommunicated. This is Matthew 18, 17. Excommunication implies that the church cannot no longer credit his profession of faith. So this is what we see here in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault physical, emotional, verbal, sexual abuse, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to even listen, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, they have now reached a point where they are categorized as an unbeliever. Pagans, the King James says, heathen. They may outwardly seem like that they're Christian, but their actions say otherwise. So the scripture says in Matthew 18, they have effectively become a non-Christian. Now in this case, 1 Corinthians 7 becomes the controlling verse as it relates to excommunicated spouses. Now by the way, obviously I'm using some pretty strong language. 
We've never had an excommunication in our church. We've never had a situation where we've had to do something like that in a very public way. But I'm just sharing with you what Scripture says, and the reason why it's so severe is because the sin is so severe, right? If the Scripture speaks to it this way, that means it shows you God's heart when there is this kind of fracture in a relationship, when there is this kind of trauma, when there is this kind of abuse. So God takes this very, very seriously. So if there is an excommunication where someone is put out of a congregation, now we may in our own minds think this could be a very humiliating thing. It can happen quietly. It could be in our office. It could be us talking with a, a couple over coffee or in their home, and we say, if, if we've come to a point where there's a breach, then it's not appropriate for you to be part of the fellowship of God, and then it's done. That's, quote, the excommunication. But there is a break of relationship on purpose because the Holy Spirit demands it in order to try to bring the man back or the woman back to bring healing. But in this case, if there is a putting out of one of the spouses, then 1 Corinthians 7 becomes the primary passage. So how does a supposed believer become excommunicated and credited as a non-believer? There's a really important passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Not just an unbeliever, but worse than an unbeliever. Now, the two main responsibilities of a man are to provide for his wife and to protect his wife. That's the responsibility of being the covering. So when a man refuses to provide and protect his wife, he has, in military terms, gone AWOL, or in biblical terms, he's abandoned the faith. And as Paul says here in this chapter, this verse, he's worse than an unbeliever. So at this point, the rules regarding non-believing spouses become governing. And 1 Corinthians 7 comes back into play. The woman has a right to have her husband leave or to divorce him. It says, if any brother has a wife who is unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Likewise, a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to deliver, she must not send him away. Now, basically, Paul is saying in the reverse is by the fact that she doesn't send him away, she spe it speaks of her right in the opposite sense to send him away. So the question is, even though a spouse may have the right to do this, does it mean he or she should exercise that right? Is divorce required in each of these cases? And the answer is absolutely not. The Bible allows for divorce, but it's not commanded. The Bible permits, regulates, and limits divorce. In the Old Testament, divorce was allowed by Moses because of the hardness of heart. But in the New Testament, becoming a Christian is about getting a new heart, a soft heart filled with the Holy Spirit. And so such a heart is capable of laying hold of the grace of God and the strength of God and to be able to forgive your spouse despite how grievous a sin they may have committed against their husband or wife. And this is what made Kennedy's testimony so powerful. Despite the pain and the difficulty, he was availing himself of the grace of God, even if he was just hanging by a thread, even if he thought he was going to fall off the cliff, yet the grace of God was holding on to him, and he was responding to that grace. 
Therefore, there really is no reason for two legitimately born-again Christians to ever get divorced. By the grace of God, they can change and they can forgive. The idea here is that the grace of God bids us to work hard at reconciliation in the same way that Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us. That's the picture. That's the model. Let's not forget the great lengths that Jesus went to reconcile our relationship with him. One of the provisions of Scripture in the process of reconciliation and healing is physical separation, not divorce. And this creating a physical space is meant to help us get at the issues until things can be restored or resolved. Again, we have this scripture in 1 Corinthians 7.10. To the married, God says that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, again, there is a provision there to create space. If she does leave, as in, Okay, let's have a time where we're not together. We'll try to work it out. The Bible says there that she is not, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. God's heart is reconciliation. But as we know, whether our friends or ourselves or myself as a pastor, after everything has tried, been tried, whether it's counseling, mediation, separation, and after a protracted period of authentic, concerted effort and divorce is still exercised in one of these exception options, a person has the freedom to get remarried. When the Bible permits divorce, it is by definition also permissible for the wrong or abandoned party to remarry. So, and say it this way, that divorce is very difficult because it's navigating a tension between the ideal and the real. And I make this quote here on the slide. Within the church, we see various responses to tough marital struggles. Some may counsel for divorce too hastily, advising couples to forego the difficult peaks and valleys that are part of any marriage. And in essence, ignoring the high value the Bible places on the marriage commitment. It's okay, just separate irreconcilable differences. We have a culture now that just gives permission to that. So it could be easy to just have a bias to that side. The other end is, meanwhile, others may respond with legalism, pressuring fellow Christians to stay in a marriage that are clearly destructive and unsafe. And that would be wrong as well. So we don't want to err on either side, but we want to find the biblical middle. There are no cookie-cutter answers to some of these difficult questions. The tension remains. Marriage is a lifelong commitment that is only broken for the most severe reasons. So as a Christian community, we should strive to treat marriage with respect and honor as a lifelong commitment, but also reach out to protect the vulnerable and mistreated. Only as we stay engaged with the whole word of God can we navigate this tension. So I want to just close with this. I'm really speaking to three audiences this morning. First is I'm speaking to singles, those who have not been married. And I've given us a bit of a framework to understand the Bible and to, for you to develop the biblical conviction about the sanctity and commitment that's required in marriage before God. Part of the reason why we've seen an erosion is because the values haven't been properly assimilated. We're sort of just here, there, and everywhere, and we're just grabbing things, bits and pieces, but I want us to have a bit of a comprehensive understanding 
of how the scripture looks at it. So if you're single and you haven't gotten married yet, then ponder these things. Re-listen to the message or come to John and myself and we'll unpack it even more for you. But be someone that can bring a witness to the world in terms of saying, when I say I do to my spouse, I mean I do. Second group of audience that I'm speaking to is those who are struggling and thinking of maybe getting a divorce right now. You just think, wow, it would be so great to just get divorced. I had a woman many years come to me, not in this church. She came, she called a meeting before the pastors and the elders, and she said, I'm going to divorce my husband. So we said, okay, just explain yourself a little bit. She talked about all the things that irritated her and frustrated her. I said, well, has he committed adultery? She said, no. I said, is he providing for you? She said, yes. But he's this and he's that. And I prayed and I really feel a peace from God that we're supposed to get divorced. And I said, you know, sister, you don't feel peace. You feel relief. That's not peace from God. You're just imagining what it feels like for your flesh when you get out of it. And that's relief, and that's not peace. And so we have a culture out there that's just enabling this without properly wrestling with the depth of Scripture and how God wants us to be committed. And so if you're thinking about this, again, come to Pastor John or myself, and we'll help you try to walk through this as best as we can. The third audience is that there are those who have already been divorced. Hopefully you get a little clear picture from the scriptures and you're more equipped to help others as you might be called into situations to assist those who are divorced or have been traumatized by divorce or are thinking about divorce. And you can be an aid and you can be a help. Or maybe you thought, man, maybe I made a wrong decision or I did something and there's some lingering doubts that you have. Again, we're here to talk through that with you and to help you come to a real place of peace. So I deliberately taken on a, a pretty heavy subject this morning because the testimonies have taken us there. And there's not an often time that we get to really unpack something at, at this level. And so the big picture is we're here to rebuild one of the most damaged parts of the wall in society today. That is marriage and couples that have been through just the pain of just permanent divorce. And so hopefully as a community and all the different people that we touch and that we talk to, we can be a light and we can be vessels of healing. So let's just close with some prayer here. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace, for your gospel. Your word is so challenging and yet so compassionate. It helps us to see your heart, and yet it also helps us to walk in just the weakness that we have. And I pray, God, that as this message has been shared this morning, that seeds would be planted and thoughts would be triggered and wrestlings would be, would be just had as we contend with what your truth says. I pray for your grace to come upon us as a congregation that we, be, we would be used by you, Father God, to touch many marriages and that we ourselves would be able to testify even as Kenny did and even as Hannah has about how your grace works deeply in us to bring us to a fresh place of peace and joy and healing. So we thank you now, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Divorce is a very heavy topic. It is something that the church doesn't talk about enough. It is something that we as a church, we don't address enough. Like Pastor Rich said, there is no one answer. Relationships are complicated. They're convoluted. They're, there's so many things that, that play into it. And as a, as a church, we believe in what Scripture has to say. But at the same time, we don't condemn. That there's no condemnation that comes with it because we're not condemning you. Because there's this grace and mercy that we fall under. We just want to help you walk through something that God has intended. And so, yes, we are going to be biblical about it. But at the same time, we want you to know that there is a grace that we walk under. And wherever you are in life, whatever you've walked through already, wherever you are currently, that where you are right now, if you consecrate that to God, God can make that holy. That if you're, you've gone through divorce and have remarried and you're just like, well, that's it. I've already done that part. What, what do I do now? Well, consecrate that to God. Allow God to bring holiness into that area. But at the same time, if you're in a place where you're trying to figure things out and you're just like, I don't know about this whole marriage thing. One of the things I want to encourage most singles here and all singles here actually is just consecrate yourself to God. Make sure that you're right with God. Because what's to come, if you're right with God, no matter what happens with your spouse, you know you're right with God. Set your heart aligned right. I love Kennedy and Elise's story because there's an aspect of reconciliation there. Just like how Israel and God reconciled. How in Jeremiah, God divorced Israel because of what Israel has done, but yet in Nehemiah, God reconciles that marriage and reconciles that just that, that relationship. And so like I said, this is a hard topic. It's not easy. It is not an easy topic. There's no cookie-cutter answer. But this is a place, this is a church that we want you to feel like we could have these discussions, that we could ha- come to a place where we could talk about this, where we could, where we could find an answer, where we could find healing. And that's what this place is for. So let's pray, Father God. We just ask that your glory come. Lord, that your grace come, that your joy come, that your peace comes. Lord, that regardless of what is in our spirit and in our heart, Lord, that you fill us with your spirit and give us what we need to do what you want us to do. So, Father God, we just pray as we come before you, we just lift all things to you for your glory and for your namesake. So, Lord, we thank you. We give all honor, glory, and praise to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed. We'll see you guys next week.